0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm your host today, Brian Hamilton, and I'm joined by historian Robert Hunt Ferguson, author of the book Remaking the Rural South, Interracialism, Christian Socialism, and Cooperative Farming in Jim Crow, Mississippi. It's hot off the presses, having been published here in the new year by University of Georgia Press. Robert Ferguson, welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Rob, I wonder if we could start with you telling our listeners a little about your upbringing and your path to becoming an academic historian.
1: Sure. I grew up in a town called Eden, North Carolina. Uh, My father and grandmother are both high school history teachers. And so I was, from a very young age, uh, surrounded by history books and these wonderful stories. Our family conversations uh, often swerved into the historical. Uh, And and so that love of history was fostered at a a pretty young age for me. Uh, I... Went to college at uh, Western Carolina University, and uh, eventually went and got a PhD uh, uh, in history from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And since 2012, I am back at my undergraduate alma mater uh, as an assistant professor of history at Western Carolina University, which is in Cullowhee, uh, North Carolina, Uh, to give your listeners an idea that's about, uh, about an hour west of Asheville in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so that's, uh, that's my academic path.
0: I love that it's full circle. That's great. That's right. Yep. <laughs> now, now this is the first book length study of Delta Cooperative Farm and Providence Farm. Uh, what drew you to the story and, and how is it that no other historians got there first over the past 60 years, do you think?
1: Well, the second question has confounded me as well. I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, I will say, um, uh, uh, Delta and Providence Farms have, uh, shown up as um, – as, uh, in articles or as um, essays and collections um, uh, on a story named Fred Smith uh, uh, wrote about Delta Cooperative Farm a few years ago. Uh, but this is the first sort of comprehensive study of Delta Cooperative Farm. Uh, in terms of how I get interested in the subject more broadly, uh, for as long as I can remember, I've been interested in how race functions – Uh, especially how race functions in America and in the American South more specifically. Um, I can recall uh, at a very young age, probably 10 or 12, this would have been the late 1980s, early 1990s, I was um, riding bikes around my hometown uh, with a friend of mine, and we rode into the historic downtown district. And from a distance, we saw what looked to us like a parade happening. And we thought, well, great. We'll ride over there and we'll get some candy and it'll be fun. And as we got closer, I realized that it was actually a Ku Klux Klan rally. Oh, my. And yeah. And um, at the time, you know, I was, you know, like I said, I was pretty young, but it, it confused me. Uh, I knew what the Klan was uh, and um, I, I more or less knew, understood the history of it. Uh, and I thought this is kind of strange that there's a, a Klan rally in my town where it seems to me everybody gets along. Um, but after that, <clears throat> I started looking at things a bit more critically, um, even in my you know, small community, and formulating questions. They were inarticulate questions because I was so young, um, but about uh, about race relations and about, again, how race functions. And um, that really sort of piqued my interest uh, at, at a young age. And when I sort of looked just underneath the surface, I realized that my assumptions about you know, quote unquote, everybody getting along, you know, weren't quite correct. And, um, the few times I asked folks about it growing up, uh, typically the answer would be, well, it's just always been this way. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't until I got to college, uh, at Western Carolina and I took a class with Richard Starnes. Um, he's actually now my Dean. So again, coming full circle, <laughs> uh-huh. But uh, Richard taught uh, a survey course in the history of the American South, and it was in that class that um, <clears throat> I first realized that there were these important historical moments of interracial cooperation, of blacks and whites coming together to solve collective problems. Um, I learned that segregation was not inevitable. It did not just spring you know, fully born from the end of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, it had – that segregation had to be vigilantly maintained by white supremacists. Um, you know, In short, I learned that it hadn't always been this way uh, and that that was not only a historical but, but a lie that had been maintained for, for generations. Um, and so I got drawn into these stories of Southerners who had gone against the mainstream uh, to – in most cases to fight injustice. And when I got to a PhD program at UNC Chapel Hill – I knew that I wanted to write on race relations in the rural South. Um, I grew up in a very rural community uh, and had had my interest peaked at a young age. And I went to my advisor, uh, Fitz Brundage, and we talked about this for a while. And he said, well, why don't you uh, go over to the Southern Historical Collection, just a few buildings over, and uh, this wonderful you know, archive, and uh, tell them your interests and see what they have. And I sat down with the archivists at the Southern Historical Collection. And it was like Christmas morning for them. Uh, <laughs> uh, they said, "We've been waiting for someone <laughs> to come in here and say exactly what you just said." Here are twelve and a half linear feet of of, our, of papers uh, on Delta and Providence Cooperative Farms, uh, and that's what I did for the next, you know, five six years. <laughs> I searched through those papers and eventually write this book.
0: <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, someone who grew up in the North and who taught some school in the North, it just these are the <laughs> stories that don't get up there, certainly. Um, they don't get out there very broadly. I am I'm so, glad, of, I'm so yep. glad to see it. Uh, and so let's, let's get into it. So you opened the book um, with a really detailed and fascinating kind of tracing of, of tracking of the social and intellectual and religious threads that come together in the Mississippi Valley in the 1930s to form and shape Delta Cooperative Farm. Could you help lay those out for our reader, listeners? Sure, yeah,
1: um, hopefully listeners and readers uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the first chapter uh, as you say, does trace mostly the intellectual and then eventually the the practical origins of the first farm that I write about Delta cooperative farms um, uh, i I trace the origin of of Delta Farm by talking about three individuals who i I consider to be the uh, the essential founders of Delta Farm. Uh, William Amberson, Sam Franklin, and sherwood Eddie, uh, and talking about these three men allows me to also talk about uh, the uh, major intellectual influences on the farm socialism uh, uh, an international cooperative movement that was sort of sweeping the world at the time from uh, you know Soviet Russia to Japan to the United States um, Uh, Christian socialism, a certain uh, strain of socialism called Christian socialism, and then labor unionism. Uh, William Amberson uh, was a a biologist who worked for the University of Tennessee but in in Memphis, Uh, so he was close to the um, Mississippi Delta. He had done some graduate work in Germany and had been exposed to socialism uh, while there, and when he returned to the States… Uh, His commitment to socialism and the working class grew. He joined several political uh, and and advocacy organizations, started helping the homeless in Memphis during the Great Depression. Uh, And those connections with the homeless led him to the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, which had recently formed in Arkansas. Uh, And Amberson in about 1935 becomes uh, rather zealous about solving the problems of, of the homeless and the unemployed in the Mississippi River Valley. Um, what had happened, uh, in addition to the, the terrible destitution that the, the Great Depression caused, in um, the process of trying to solve fluctuating crop prices, the New Deal uh, passed – or Congress uh, passed uh, the AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, this uh, New Deal uh, um, solution to fluctuating crop prices. What uh, In in practice, what it meant was that large-scale farmers were supposed to move – remove a certain percentage of their land out of production, and of course, in the south, uh, in plantation agriculture, that meant that sharecroppers not only lost their jobs, uh, but they also lost their homes. Uh, Plantation owners simply just kicked them off the land and then kicked them out of their homes that they were uh, renting. Uh, so a lot of um, roadside tent communities popped up in Arkansas, Missouri, a few in Mississippi, and um, just west of Memphis and Tennessee. Um, and Amberson traveled among these these tent communities uh, and was just uh, very taken with the the plight of the sharecroppers. And he began to to search out other like-minded individuals who uh, would have the knowledge and the means. Uh, and the commitment to help these sharecroppers uh, uh, sort of start all over. Uh, The first person Amberson found was a guy named Sam Franklin. He was a Presbyterian missionary. Uh, He had gone to Japan in the early 1930s uh, and worked alongside a a Christian Japanese man named Toyohika Kagawa, who to this day is still revered in in Japan as sort of a folk hero and um, uh, 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 a prominent agrarian reformer, sort of hero to the poor. Uh, When – Relations deteriorated between Japan and China. Franklin returned to the United States, uh, took a graduate course at Union Theological Seminary in New York, and became quite attracted to Christian socialism. When he and Amberson met, Amberson said, listen, you're probably not going to get to return to to Japan as a missionary. Why don't you think about bringing your Christian socialism to the Mississippi Delta? Uh, And uh, we'll see if we can give these these sharecroppers a new life. We've been talking about starting these cooperative communal farms, uh, either in Arkansas or Mississippi, somewhere in the Mississippi Valley. Will you help us out? And Franklin thought about it and decided that he was uh, excited about the prospect, but it, it needed money. And that's where this last individual, uh, comes into the picture. Share what Eddie, um, who in many ways was a mentor to Sam Franklin. Uh, Eddie was, uh, the head of missions for the ymca for uh, a long time in the early 20th century uh, he traveled the world with the ymca and when he came to uh, the mississippi delta and saw the destitution among the sharecroppers he said this is you know this is a site that i've seen it's as bad as i've seen anywhere in the world and um he was also sort of convinced to join this effort, and these three men, along with the Southern Tenant Farmers Union um, and um, uh, a lot of other sharecroppers who were involved in the union, they were the ones who uh, sort of hatched this idea for buying up a lot of uh, farmland. For the first farm, it's a little over 2,000 acres, and sharewood Eddy had a, a trust fund, which was lucky, <laughs> and, uh, and they found 2,000 acres in, in Mississippi and in the spring of 1936 they began moving people over to the farms
0: yeah, and you had said uh in, in the book you said they do, they do consider Ar- arkansas also as a place but you know as unlikely a place as mississippi is, you said they actually thought it was their chances were better there
1: <laughs> uh yes in some ways uh, um the, the 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 negative thing about arkansas uh was that uh the The area in Arkansas where the Southern Tenant Farmers Union functioned uh, had actually had a very long and very violent history of um, a long history of union activism and a violent history of anti union uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, opposition. Uh, and so, um, the the Southern Tenant Farmers Union had felt that they had sort of antagonized so many planters in the area uh, that that they were a little bit more comfortable with. Uh, searching out places in Mississippi. Um of course in the 1930s Mississippi had um a, a reputation um for um you know for white supremacy, for racial violence and they were essentially trading, you know, one not so ideal place for another not so ideal place. Um <laughs> but you know this is sort of a just those contingencies of history where yeah They ended up in Mississippi because that's where they found cheap land, honestly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that that, that more than anything else explains why Mississippi.
0: (laughs) Well, once you get your players there, then then you go on in the book to help your readers see how this place functioned, agriculturally, economically, socially, politically. Um, And you seemingly proudly say that you're trying to make clear the tediousness of social justice. Um, And I love that phrase. Um, (laughs) Could you help us understand how this tediousness is, is so interesting?
1: yeah so uh as as the book continues um you really delve into uh the you know the day to day of uh not only of of social justice activism but also the day to day of simply living in a rural farming community um and it's interesting how these two things sort of come together because on the surface their lives are as 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 prosaic as the lives of anyone else living in rural America in the mid 1930s, mm. um, they you know they fall in love, they get married, they have children, uh, they come down with all sorts of of illnesses, um, they're uh, um, you know worried about being paid fairly, um, uh, they have arguments, all of these things that that. You know, everyday Americans did in the 1930s, they were doing in uh, rural Mississippi as well at Delta Cooperative Farm. Uh, but what they were doing that not a lot of other communities were doing was engaging in social justice. And uh, there was often a tension between uh, the the former sharecroppers who lived on the cooperative farm and some of the managers Um, The managers – you know, Sam Franklin was the first manager of Delta Corporate Farm, highly educated, had traveled the world, was a committed Christian socialist, uh, had very strong Christian ideals. And when he would attempt to explain Christian socialism to some of the sharecroppers, a few of them were immediately on board and and, and understood it completely because they had already been involved in labor activism with the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. Um, But for some… Uh, it it, it didn 't necessarily compute, nor did it have uh, in in their view an immediate impact on their lives uh, and so there was this this tension between the management sometimes and and the uh, the residents uh, but the successes in social justice abounded on the farm. Uh, they started a medical clinic that served uh, both white and black um, most likely it was the first integrated medical clinic uh, in the country, or I'm sorry, in, in Mississippi at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the custom for most medical clinics in rural Mississippi was that um, African-Americans either you know waited in the hallway or the stairwell or out in, out in their vehicles uh, while the waiting room was reserved for whites only, but at, at Delta Cooperative Farm, uh, the, the waiting room was integrated. Um, every summer, there were uh, sisters from the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority uh, uh, who would come down and help out at the medical clinic. So it was also integrated in that way. Um, They um, uh, had integrated community meetings, integrated uh, labor union meetings. There was a chapter of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union set up at the farms. Um, And they began to try to um, distribute the earnings of the farm uh, to the residents in an equitable way. the the grand plan was that eventually the residents would take over ownership of the farms. And unfortunately that never happened. Um, but that was the plan initially. Um, and even though it doesn't happen, uh, the, the payment that these farmers received was, uh, uh, much fairer than anything they had received in the
0: past. Yeah. And the first year they did quite well,
1: right? Uh, the first year they did okay. Uh, I, you know, I, I would say that, um, From an economic standpoint, uh, the fact that they were a brand new farm, they had not broken ground until late March of 1936, which is pretty late in the season in in that part of the country. Hmm. Um, And – uh, the fact that they were not simply a farming community; they were also trying to do all these other social justice initiatives, education initiatives, religious initiatives. The fact that they were juggling all these things, and it was in their first year, uh, I think they they did quite well. Um, uh, you know, Sherwood Eddie was traveling the country promoting what was being done on the farms, and he was very fond of saying that uh, in the first year, the farm. Uh, was incredibly financially financially successful compared to other farms like it. Um, that optimism, however, um, was not maintained for the next couple of years, um, and and the very next chapter actually uh, begin with the first natural disaster that the residents yeah. of the farm faced: uh, the the flood of um, the winter of 1937. Uh, it was. The most devastating flood they'd had in a decade. Um, it, it it rivaled the the great flood of 1927 that that Mississippi Valley experienced. But um, the farm had to be evacuated when they when they finally were able to return to the farm. It was devastated. They were behind schedule again, um, and that sort of that natural disaster uh, really really put them behind um, in the second year of the farm's existence. Uh, in addition to that, some of the residents who weren't necessarily on board with living on a cooperative communal farm began to really question the endeavor uh, and butt heads with the management, with people like Sam Franklin, uh, who, by his own admission, was pretty hard headed too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so external factors hurt the farm in the second year, uh, as well as some internal factors
0: yeah yeah can you talk more about about some of the you call paternalism of some of these leaders you know they're they're quite radical um by any standards i think but they also are hanging on to some some ideas about 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 kind of racial superiority or things like that can you kind of help us understand how to, how to think about them and their politics
1: sure uh the paternalism aspect of of the managers of the farms um is is really obvious uh to uh to people reading it in you know in 2018 yeah uh um, <laughs> And and you're and you're right, Brian. They were no less radical in the 1930s. Um, uh, they were socialists, and for the most part, the American Socialist Party uh, were gradualists, uh, especially mm-hmm. when compared to the to the American Communist Party. But right. they were they were gradualists uh, on the issue of of um, you know full uh, legal integration. They did believe in social equality uh, and racial equality, um, and they espoused that publicly. Uh, But in practice on the farms, um, Sam Franklin, for all of his, uh, you know, really incredible accomplishments at Delta Cooperative Farm, he often treated the residents um, as if sometimes as if they were children. Uh, And that was as much paternalism towards African-Americans as it was paternalism towards the rural poor. Um, I I think – even though uh, Sam Franklin was highly educated, he grew up in in the rural South. He was from rural Tennessee, um, but he had sort of uh, gotten ab- above that um, and 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 done well for himself. Um, and I think that his uh, his own prejudices uh, that he didn't fully realize when he was manager of Delta Cooperative Farm often got in the way of the day to day operations and got in the way of him fully explaining exactly what they were trying to do and he admitted as much later in his life um he actually wrote uh a um a small uh manuscript on uh his experience at delta corporate farm that was never published um but in the end of it he's he admits uh uh that i think he says something like um uh you know, my sins were uh, concealed to the sinner. You know, but but mm. but well, but well known to everyone else. <laughs> uh, and he's talking about his paternalism. He he mm. just could not overcome that at the time. Um, uh, but eventually, Sam Franklin leaves. Uh, he goes off and joins the war effort uh, in the early 1940s. And um, a new set of leaders uh, arrive at the farm, uh, and the the leadership on the farm uh, becomes truly integrated. There's um, uh, a white doctor who takes up full-time residence at the farm. Uh, there's a, a white manager. And then a woman named Fanny Booker, uh, who was uh, uh, a native of rural Mississippi. Uh, she joins um, the, the cooperative effort in the 1940s um, and is part of the management um, up until the mid-1950s.
0: Yeah, let's, I'd like to talk more about Booker. He's such a fascinating character, and and you say, you know, there's this controversial purchase of another farm as Delta's mm-hmm. sort of collapsing up in up and uh, um, further up in the Del- northern Delta. Um, and you say Booker really um, her involvement in the, and the kind of priorities she has really helps to characterize this, the the differences between the two farms.
1: She does, yes. Um, uh, World War II changes the cooperative effort at Delta Farm uh, by the beginning of the war. Uh, Delta Farm is closing. All of the um, operations are moving to a second farm that had been purchased uh, in the late 1930s, uh, called Providence Farm. Uh, the the first farm was just south of Memphis in the Mississippi Delta. The second farm, Providence, is um, uh, it's about an hour north of of Jackson, Mississippi. It's in a um, Holmes County. Um, at Providence Farm, uh, it the, it becomes much more focused on um, uh, sort of African-American self-help uh, is how I phrase it in the book, I believe. Uh, and Fannie Booker um, epitomizes that. She is a uh, – her vocation has always been as a as a teacher. Uh, when she comes to live and volunteer at Providence Farm, she actually loses her job in the local school um, because the farm is rather unpopular. Um, and so she starts a school at Providence, uh, and she starts a summer camp at Providence uh, she uh, towards the end of the existence of Providence Farm she begins to um, talk about voting rights uh, this is the 1950s uh, mm-hmm. and so um, she is uh, in so many ways I think emblematic of uh, this uh, grassroots um, black activism that you know, lots of great historians have written about um, that existed in Mississippi and, and the rural south more broadly. Uh and, and Fanny Booker brings sort of injects all these new ideas into Providence farms and it becomes less about cooperative farming and more about sort of black activism by the the
0: nineteen fifties. Yeah and the shape of agriculture also is, is different on Providence than it was at Delta. What are some of those differences?
1: It is, yes. And I haven't talked that much about the agriculture aspect of it, but um uh delta farm the, the first farm they really did envision themselves as competitors with large plantations so they grew cotton uh they they attempted to diversify and they did to a certain degree uh, but they mostly grew cotton uh to try to compete with um large plantations like the delta pine and land company which was Uh, by some measures the largest plantation in the world at the time certainly in mississippi and it was right next door and it was you know hundreds of thousands of acres and here's a two thousand acre farm trying to compete that's just not feasible so at providence uh, they diversify uh, what they're growing but they diversify what they produce broadly speaking Uh, so in addition to diversifying crops uh, they have a dairy they have uh, the manager. The new manager actually rents out a few corners of the farm to oil companies, and uh, they sink uh, oil wells and have some income from that. Um, they have a, a cooperative store where things that are uh, grown and made on the farm can be sold there. Um, they still have a medical clinic, which um, you know. The, the income from the medical clinic doesn't necessarily go directly to the farm, but it brings people to the farm. so then they'll come to the medical clinic and shop at the store. Uh, and uh, finally, they also started a federal credit union, yeah. uh, which was a really big deal. and I, I always try to emphasize this when I talk about uh, Providence Farm. Uh, you know your your listeners are probably well aware that for uh, sharecroppers to get a loan, um, they had to go to the landowner, the plantation owner, and plantation owners weren't always interested in, in figuring the numbers correctly. Um, and and of course there was an, uh, a problem with illiteracy among sharecroppers. Uh, so when a federal credit union comes to Providence Farm, it means that for the first time in the, the residents' lives, uh, most likely they're getting you know, fair rates on loans – um, they're getting uh, uh, sort of a fair shake when it comes to getting on their feet economically speaking, um, and and people come from miles around, several counties away, to um, in order to uh, to to conduct their business at the Federal Credit Union.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. It, it, there's, you know, I always get frustrated with overly simplistic narratives of the failure of reconstruction, thinking that if you should just get black folks land, then everything would be better. But you also need credit. That's exactly right. That's
1: uh, exactly right. Capital has to equation. come from somewhere.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, one of the things about the dairy, right, that you come back to a couple of times, is that very few of them had any idea how to run a dairy. <laughs> to them, right? and that mattered, right? In the sort of tediousness yes. of this. But,
1: yes. Yes. Right? Uh, not to mention, you know we 've talked about the the tediousness of of social justice, and you know uh socialism takes up all of one 's nights, or whatever the the quote is but uh but the the tediousness of the everyday farming life and and some of them were new to some of these endeavors, like the dairy uh making sure that uh oh my goodness um you know the 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 seals on the machines were were uh, were sealed properly and and weren 't malfunctioning um you know uh, uh, daily bacteria counts would huh. you know, drove the manager absolutely batty <laughs> uh, and then you know they had to make sure that the milk was delivered properly uh, across several counties um, it, it actually uh, by the end of of the farms um, the dairy no longer existed they just had to to sell that and and cut their losses with it because it it became sort of too large for for them to really uh, take care of.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think it also, I mean, just because of this entire kind of lofty experiment also depended on this agricultural knowledge, right? And there's that moment when Sam Franklin kind of pushes out, uh, uh, is it George Smith, I think his name is, from Delta, mm-hmm. who yes. is a black resident of the region who had lived there for, for his life, I believe, right? And right. he said That's he had right. he had kind of this intimate knowledge of the landscape, but but Franklin, and Franklin's only one of the only people that has any sort of agricultural background of the people that come to the region, right. they from the outside. Correct. Um, and so they have kind of the struggle over sort of his ideas of farming versus this kind of local knowledge of farming. Um, another expression of that paternalism, maybe.
1: That's right. Yeah. There's, uh, there, there are residents like George Smith, uh, African-American man who had been, uh, in the, in the region for a long time and, you know, had dreamed of, of, you know, basically owning his own chicken farm and, and the, the cooperative helps him get set up with that. Um, and and he and Sam Franklin don't always see eye to eye on on how to run the farm. Uh, same with with a man named Jim Henderson, who was uh, a white sharecropper, who uh, when he moved his family and all his belongings to Delta Cooperative Farm, you know, he stood guard with a shotgun so that the hmm. the plantation owner wouldn't come and, and threaten his family. Um, hmm. You know, these are these are rough-hewn people, and they had they had you know, all their lives they had uh, uh, they had been farmers. Um, typically farming for someone else, uh, but they had this intimate knowledge that that Sam Franklin only had really a, a glimmer of. Um, and then, of course, you had these very well-meaning, uh, but sometimes um, uh, a little too idealistic, perhaps, of uh, uh, volunteers who would come down every summer. These uh, right. co- college students uh, came from all over. Uh, they would come from Uh, you know, other Southern locations like, uh, you know, Georgia, North Carolina, but you know, Wisconsin and California, they would come from all over typically either through the YMCA or, uh, the society of uh, friends, Quakers Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, their hearts were in the right place, but when they would come, uh, they would often think, you know, because they were educated that they knew better how to operate certain things as well and, and it didn't always quite work out well in practice.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you said African-American college students were not permitted.
1: Yeah. Initially, uh, initially that was true. Um, okay. uh, that changes later on. Um, but it also coincides with, um, around world war II, uh, volunteers on the farm, uh, become fewer and fewer every summer. Um, initially in the 1930s and early 1940s, uh, African-American volunteers, uh, were not permitted uh and um that was a decision yet again made by sam franklin uh, hmm. and and he consulted with a few other people, but ultimately it was his decision um and and he justified it by saying, you know um, what if we have you know young idealistic african American students who come from outside this the south?" And they get to rural Mississippi, and it's it's not what they imagine, And they run afoul of Mississippi's very strict uh, uh, racial uh, hierarchy, racial norms. Uh, can we protect them? And of mm-hmm. course, and of course, while that fear was very real, that's also in in some ways a paternalistic argument, right? Can we protect them? Right? He's yeah. acting like <laughs> he's acting like a, a very much a paternalist.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so that was his justification for right or wrong. That's what he decided. Um, uh, but again, by the 1950s, there were people passing through the farms—some just curious visitors, some on a volunteer basis, uh, white and black—and it, it, it did not matter.
0: Yeah, yeah. Can we talk a bit about some of the other ways that World War II transformed operations of Providence Farm? You said it was, you know, siphoned off. Of course, some of the folks that went in the draft, or you know, Franklin—not you know, Franklin, but the uh, the doctor that goes off there to <laughs> serve. Um, was Franklin actually begs himself a, a commission in the Navy? Right? Is that right? He does. He has to keep. He has to keep asking and asking and asking.
1: Yes, I mentioned a, a while ago. Um, Sam Franklin is hard headed, and um, he uh, goes to, I think every branch. Well, he goes to, yeah, I think every branch um, of the military, and uh, asks for a commission. Um, uh, and he says, "Look, I have this practical knowledge. I've lived in Japan." Right. Um, and you would think that he would be, um, you know, they would, they would jump on someone like Sam Franklin, uh, to, to go off and, and surf. Uh, he's turned down twice over. Uh, and after the second time, the, the, the very first night he says, all right, that's it. You know, I've tried, I'll just stay in Mississippi. And the next morning he wakes up and he says, you know, darn it, that's not good enough. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to try again. Uh, so, um. He does some inquiring, and it, it turns out that, it, at least, it is his impression that um, uh, when the various branches inquired about Sam Franklin and his um, suitableness to, to to serve in the U.S. military, that some people had mentioned his um, his farm, and that it was. Uh, socialist, um, and I'm sure that they didn't actually didn't say socialist. They probably said communist, sure. uh, which it, which of course it wasn't. But um, that was a distinction lost on most Americans at the time, um, and that it was interracial, um, and so Franklin uh, came to the conclusion that he had been somewhat blackballed because of his involvement with Delta Cooperative Farm. Um, but the, the th- you know the third try was the charm, I suppose, and he eventually. <laughs> Uh, received a commission uh, and went off to war. The doctor, as you say, also left for a time, but he, he returns at the conclusion of the war and and spends the next uh, decade or so uh, living in Mississippi, serving as the farm's doctor. Um, uh, it, it, it meant that a lot of the residents uh, went off to war, but more importantly, it meant that a lot of the residents went off to live in urban America, working in the war industry. Uh, And so, and so, rural life changes because of World War II. I mean, you know, that's that's been well documented. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but life at at Delta and Providence changes because of World War II. Many of the white residents are able to find work in the war industry, while many of the black residents uh, remain in the rural South and remain at Providence Farm, and that's yet another reason why Providence Farm becomes more of a center of black activism than of a sort of socialist communalist farm like delta cooperative had been
0: mm-hmm. and at the same time as this is happening beyond just the personnel effects that war has there's also you say there's kind of uh, increasing racial anxiety among local white residents as they look at providence farm um for a couple of reasons and-
1: that's right and that's um i i appreciate that segue brian uh that, <laughs> uh, uh You know the the 1950s. We've talked about the 30. We talked about the depression and World War II. And the 1950s actually sets up a very different context uh, for what was happening out at Providence Farm. Um, uh,
0: You know, start chapter five with the equivalent of a lynch mob, basically. That's that's right.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's right. Um, You know, in 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 uh, 1955, less than an hour's drive from Providence Farm, uh, Emmett Till is murdered. Um, And this is all, you know, front page news. This is a, you know, a year after the Supreme court decision to integrate public schools. Um, And uh, there are many white Mississippians, including in Holmes County uh, who are, um, who are up in arms uh, about, um, what they perceive to be their, a uh, changing way of life. Um, and it's, um, just a couple of days after the, the two men who kidnapped and murdered Emmett Till, uh, are acquitted mm-hmm. that a, uh, a pickup truck carrying several, um, uh, teenage African-American boys drives by a bus stop just down the road from Providence farm. Several of the, of the young residents from the farm are at the, at the bus stop. And one of the teenagers uh, yells out of the truck uh, a flirtatious comment. Uh, the comment was, uh, hey, sugar, you look good to me. And uh, there are several young women at the bus stop, white and African-American. And for some reason um, that we don't know, uh, uh, an 11-year-old white girl who lived at Providence Farm assumes that the comment had been aimed at her, and she begins to cry Uh, She gets on the bus. The bus driver inquires about why she's upset. The bus driver tells the principal. The principal calls the sheriff. And um, within a matter of an hour or so, the the pickup truck uh, and the occupants of the pickup truck are, quote unquote, apprehended, um, and they're questioned. Now, I'll I'll sort of cut to the chase to say that what happened to uh, the teenager who who yelled at this out from the truck. He said, you know, I was actually speaking to, uh, an African-American girl at the bus stop. Uh, and I, I, knew her, I was speaking to her. Uh, I had no intention of, of saying anything to this 11 year old girl. Um, and that didn't matter. Uh, he was convicted of uttering vulgarities in the presence of a white woman and sentenced to six months on the County farm. Um, but, During the questions, uh, during this interrogation, quote unquote, uh, a lot of the questions were about Providence Farm. Uh, This teenager did not live at the farm, but he had been to the farm a lot. He had shopped at the community store. He had been with his parents when they had gone to the credit union. Uh, He had gone to uh, uh, community events at the community building. Uh, And so the sheriff and uh, several people that the sheriff invited into the interrogation, uh, who were all local white uh, either business owners or, in the case of one person, a, a white politician, as she served in the the um, uh, state legislature in Mississippi, um, they asked about Providence. What goes on there? Do they talk about social equality? Do they talk about voting rights? And and uh, uh, does have, have you ever heard the the word communism? Um, and it was essentially um, a, a way to paint. Uh, the, the residents of Providence as uh, integrationists, quote-unquote, and, and communists. Um, the next day, a community meeting was called in, in, the, in the closest town to, to Providence. A uh, thousand people lived in this town, and 500 showed up to the community meeting. Uh, the other 500 were actually at the football game. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a Friday night. Um, and uh, uh, the, the white doctor and the white manager from Providence Farm... Uh, got a phone call and said, "You better show up at this meeting tonight," which was the first time they'd heard of it. So they they come out, and um, they are, you know, accused of being communists. They're accused of um, uh, violating Mississippi's very strict segregation laws. Um, uh, they even accused the doctor at one point of being a spy for Soviet Russia. Um, and at the end of the meeting. The sheriff and a few of the community leaders call for a vote, a show of hands. uh, Who wants these two people and their families and all the residents of Providence Farm to leave uh, the state of Mississippi? And it's a nearly unanimous showing of hands. Um, And as they're they're walking out, you know, just totally shocked after this meeting, uh, they pass by one of their neighbors, uh, a, a local farmer, and he's Leaning against his truck, and he says very loudly to his friends, uh, "What we need for these SOBs are a couple of grass ropes." Um, so right then and there, uh, uh, threatened with lynching, and and the farm manager later wrote, he said, I, "I I am convinced that they would have lynched us right there if the parking lot had not been littered with children leaving the football huh. game, huh. Um, because the the game had just had just
0: concluded." Oh, uh, and, and, I mean, this it doesn't blindside them in, in that there's concern, of course, about the sanctity of white womanhood and about interracial sex. It's something that they had at the farms had been very careful to try to avoid the, the appearance of.
1: They had. Um, they had been talking about this since the founding of Delta Farm in 1936. And here it is nearly 20 years later. And finally, their their greatest fears are, are sort of coming to fruition. Um, so it you're right. That doesn't necessarily take them by surprise. Um. But after, after 20 years, I, I think there had been a certain comfortableness. Yeah. Um, they, they saw themselves actually as members of this larger Mississippi community. Um, they did business in town. Uh, mm-hmm. They selected their mail in town. They got their hair cut in town. Their, their children went to school with the people who had just voted them out of the county. Um, their children went to school with – children of of the man who had threatened him with lynching. Um, And uh, that aspect of it, I think, in some ways took them by surprise. They thought that maybe they had gotten past that. Um, But within several months, uh, the the Ku Klux Klan um, uh, had set up a roadblock uh, at the only road leading into and out of the farm. Uh, They were getting threatening phone calls saying, you know, all manner of of terrible things in the middle of the night. their fire insurance uh, had been uh, rescinded. Uh, It turns out the the local agent for the fire insurance company was a member of the white citizens council, um, which, uh, which sprang up in opposition to the civil rights movement. Um, and by, by mid 1956, uh, many of the residents of Providence farms had left the doctor closes his clinic. Uh, the, um, and they, and he moves his family off to Arizona. Um, the, the white manager and his family move up to a suburb of Memphis, uh, Fannie Booker and her husband, they stay on the farm, uh, until actually, um, the end of her life about, about 20 or 30 years later. Um, but it, it it essentially closes in 1956. The, The Booker's keep the community store open, um, for several years after that, eventually in the 1970s, it's open for like, for one hour a day, one day a week, you know, um, but uh, after that community meeting, and after the threats, and after the Klan comes, uh, uh, it, the the farm really ceases to exist like it had before.
0: Hmm. It seems to really feed into the historiography on sort of the shift from a broader vision of human rights and economic justice to just a narrower version of civil rights that was possible starting in the fifties and sixties. There, that's exactly right. Yep. And in, in retrospect, when you when you when you conclude in the book, you you, you find that you think that the these projects were both. Too radical and not radical enough. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, putting
1: Delta and Providence in historical context, of course is is absolutely uh, paramount um, there, uh, the, the Delta cooperative farm uh, was was radical in so many ways um, uh, as a as a social experiment, it was pretty radical as a farm it was nearly destined to fail um uh (laughs) because uh they were operating on old models um you know tractors were beginning to to take over farming by the 1930s and um uh, mechanical cotton pickers were were um uh, uh, beginning to influence cotton production and uh the cooperative farms are pretty slow to take up these new methods and so, in some ways, again, it's radical. In other ways, it's not radical enough. Providence Farm um, is, uh, in some ways, so much more interesting to me because it does seem like much more of a grassroots kind of effort than than Delta Providence uh, than Delta Cooperative Farm ever was. Um, it, it it does have more of a community feel. There are locals who are involved uh, almost from the beginning, um, and much of what Providence did was also quite radical. It does. Uh, um, it is a, a African-American-focused kind of activism, but it, it the activism is quite broad, and that's why I use the phrase human rights over and over rather than civil rights most of the time mm-hmm. um, because, uh, unfortunately, this wasn't always the case um, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, but civil rights has come to, to to make something very narrow, but it wasn't for most people who lived the civil rights movement and, and participated. Um, you know, as we know, it wasn't just about you know voting rights or integration. It was about economic rights, mm-hmm. um, and and this this broader feeling of equal access and this broader feeling of dignity, and that's what Providence Farm offered for a whole lot of people. Um, one of the ways that Providence Farm was not radical enough, as I say, was that by the mid 1950s, it really had no um, uh, no broader connections to the civil rights movement that was, that was really coalescing at the same time that Providence Farm was closing. Uh, it, mm. it could have, if it had maintained many of its, um, its connections to its earlier activism network across the country, mm. it may have been able to survive. Um, it could have drawn on the strength of lots of civil rights organizations that were, uh, uh, you know, coming to light in the mid 1950s. Um, but the connections weren't, weren't really there. Um, they Again, they were sort of an isolated community um, by the mid-1950s and they hadn't been earlier. Uh, and that also speaks to to why um, within a year after really facing these threats that most of the residents were gone.
0: Yeah, it's really important. And, and I hope that much of the, the months to come will be taken up for you by uh, of public talks and, and podcasts and getting these stories out there. Uh, when the dust settles a bit, you have some more of your own time. Uh, what's next on your plate?
1: Uh, my next project, uh, actually, uh, I, I hope you'll have me back
0: because it's actually a,
1: a, an environmental history of, of North Carolina. Um, oh, wonderful. Yeah, I, it's n- not broadly speaking. It's actually uh, taking a few specific episodes, but I'm returning to uh, my home state of North Carolina uh, to do some research. Um, uh, I've been uh, very enamored recently of um, – industrialization's relationship to, to water in my home state. Hmm. Um, and I mentioned that uh, earlier in the episode that I'm, I'm from Eden, North Carolina. And, uh, for most of the 20th century, Eden was a hub of the textile industry and the textile industry left a very significant mark on, uh, the water, uh, the, the two rivers that, that flow through Eden, North Carolina. Um, you know, the, the old adage was that you could tell what they were what they were making that day in the textile mills by the color of the water. You know, if it was blue, they were making blue jeans. (laughs) Um, uh, And then uh, after the textiles left, uh, Miller Brewing Company uh, came in and um, uh, had a very specific relationship to the water. And then finally, uh, Duke Power uh, came and set up a coal ash plant in my hometown. And um, three years ago, uh, we suffered the second largest coal ash spill in the country. Um, Right, and so, yeah, and so I'm I'm going to be exploring uh, sort of those three episodes and the relationship with the economy and the environment in Eden, North Carolina. And I'm going to hope to to draw some broader conclusions about uh, not only what it meant for Eden, but what it meant for uh, towns of similar size to Eden.
0: What a great way to follow the effluent and kind of let that drive the narrative. It's fascinating. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Robert, and, I, and I'm really looking forward to reading what comes next. Thank you very much. I
1: appreciate it. Thank mm-hmm.